0: The Doctorpreneurs Podcast with James Gupta and Dr. Greg Goodman. Transatlantic
1: perspectives on the latest and greatest topics in healthcare innovation.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of the Doctorpreneurs Podcast with me, James Gupta, and joining me, Dr. Greg Goodman from America. We've got an exciting episode lined up for you. Today, we're going to be talking about the differences between US and UK healthcare and what that means for innovation.
1: James, it's uh, it's exciting. I'm I'm really, really excited about this episode, and it's going to be a really awesome conversation discussing some of the major changes, I think, in the healthcare system, as well as some of the innovative opportunities. So, I know we're uh, we're both pumped to launch the second episode, so thanks for listening. Yeah, may the best country win, I guess, because I think we're going to get <laughs> uh,
0: a, a little bit dirty with the different systems here.
1: I I love it. Should we get started? As, as you mentioned, it's going to be a battle between kind of our weekly topic today is uh, U.S. versus U.K. healthcare, the innovation and in kind of breaking down the uh, the different systems. James, do you want to kind of launch off with the uh, the NHS and you know the system that you have, and then uh, i'll uh i won't rebuttal but i'll uh i'll give you kind of our uh, our breakdown and some of the exciting things going on yeah sure
0: thing so i guess most of our listeners are going to come from either the u.s or the uk so um uk guys are going to be very familiar with the the nhs system u.s guys may we've probably heard about it but maybe don't see it in the same light that we do because here it's something that's very much uh, respected and it's It's the one thing that we really hate any of the politicians messing with because everyone wants the NHS to remain the main healthcare provider in the UK. There's a quote from Nye Bevan, who's a politician who founded the NHS uh, about six years ago. He said, no society can legitimately call itself civilized if a sick person is denied medical aid because of lack of means. I don't know, Greg, coming from the States, what do you think about that?
1: You you know, number one, I'm a big proponent. I mean, my personal opinion, I I think that, uh, you know, everybody should have healthcare. But I think many people in the states would argue that that would be a, a terrible statement in terms of capitalism and you know thinking about you know ways in which we uh, we provide different opportunities. And as we kind of go into it, you, you know, the United States is so many different payers, right? We have the government, mm. which is a major payer. We have many different insurance companies. So I think a lot of you know the the people in the United States, depending on your kind of political view, would uh, either be horrified. Or I uh, think that's an exciting statement. So I think there's a lot of changes going on, you know, in the States with the Affordable Care Act, which was launched, you know, a number of years ago to kind of yeah, uh, increase o- access. Exactly. Or Obamacare. Exactly. To increase access. You know, we're based off of more of a fee-for-service system here. You know, so you go to a doctor and, you know, that doctor gets paid to, to treat you for a particular fee versus I think where we're shifting to in, in, in a lot of the exciting innovation is going more towards value-based care. So increasing access, increasing quality, thinking about how can we manage populations. So I think that's very different, you know, just given the kind of the payer landscape compared to, you know, I think, you know, the NHS views healthcare as as a right. And I think that's a really interesting way to view it, you know, that should everybody be allowed the opportunity to have healthcare.
0: Yeah, people in the UK will find it quite difficult to even get their heads around criticisms of what of what that quote was. We do think it's a right to have healthcare, and that the state should pay for it. And I think that's that's got to be the source of a lot of the the contention and maybe the conflict between two different sides of this debate. Because the guys in the US uh, who are you know saying this would be a bad thing in terms of capitalism, they're not presumably saying that they want uh, you know poor people to be given substandard healthcare or they want people to to die or anything like that. I guess they're making a uh, almost like a philosophical point that they don't think it's the state's responsibility to provide healthcare to people in the same way that it is to provide uh, an armed services and a policing force. Whereas in the UK, we're saying, you know, healthcare, education, police, all of these things should be provided to a good level by the state.
1: Yeah, you know, it is a very different view. And I think I think what most people are most scared about, you know, as they look at the other systems would be maybe the inefficiencies or the government's inability to kind of you know, produce maybe the same quality level of care or specialist level of care. Sure. And I'm, I heard, and I'm I heard sure one you one could argue that, right? I, well, I heard one of the Republican candidates or some sort
0: of um, conservative from the states basically saying, if you want state-sponsored health care, you've got to ask yourself, do you really want the guys from the DMV running your health care, your medical life? <laughs>
1: exactly. I, I think that's what the, the fear would be, right? The, the extreme inefficiency, you know, that the quality of physicians going into practice that you know, healthcare wouldn't be, able, you know, government would control the healthcare and therefore it wouldn't be maybe as efficient or the quality wouldn't be as good. So maybe you could argue that. I mean, uh, you know, what well, what do you think people's general feel is about the healthcare you know, in I've the UK? Not, I've not experienced, good
0: question, because yeah, it, it does come down to the quality. I've not experienced healthcare directly in the US, but I have done in the UK and in several other countries. The impression I get is that the quality of care you get on the nhs is very good i think it's 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 up there both subjectively and objectively with you know what you'd consider the top sort of healthcare providers in, in the world i think it You know, it's got good um, outcome rates for most diseases. Obviously, the quality of training is very high with British medical schools and the amount of continuing education they've got to go through. I think where it falls down and definitely the the bulk of the criticism the NHS gets isn't so much on the quality of care, although there are obvious obvious concerns about that as well. It's mostly on the inefficiencies and the bureaucracies that you alluded to earlier. So it's things like uh, the waiting times. It's the way in which care is delivered and other things like that. But the actual level of care, I imagine, is roughly the same between the US and UK, unless you're paying sort of top dollar for it in the US and you're going to like Johns Hopkins or one of these really expensive places for treatment.
1: Yeah, you you know, I I think there's a lot of arguments. I mean, as we look at, you know, the cost. Think if you look at the cost of, you know, what the United States is spending. Yeah, close to, you know, like seventeen or eighteen percent of our gross domestic product. And and then you look at the actual quality of the care and the price per you know kind of individual. You know, while we spend a lot, you could argue that you know, maybe the quality of care is is not I mean it's good but Yeah,
0: and similarly your 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 guy's lifespan isn't it's you know it's roughly equivalent to what we have in the UK and in Switzerland and in other places.
1: I guess the other point is the value. You know, one of the things that I think is maybe a little bit different is in the UK you've got you know, kind of the GP, that general practitioner, which really controls, you know, uh, a lot of the care. And I think in the States, people kind of jump to the specialist care. But I do see kind of a paradigm shift as we look at cost and we start to analyze and, you know, build out, you know, as you as you brought up the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, you know, there's all these new models of care, Yeah. You know, like the ACOs, and the bundle payments, and the patient centered medical homes, you know, looking at how do we drive value to, you know, the patients? How do we get better outcomes for, you know, a, a lower cost? There's a shift outside of the four walls of the hospital out to the community. You know, what is the experience in the UK? Is it, you know, that people are mainly treated, you know, out in the outpatient setting? How, how does that kind of work if I need a specialist?
0: So for anything that's routine care, you typically go to your GP. So your, your family doctor, I guess you'd call it over there. Mm-hmm your primary care physician basically and they're in a sense the gatekeeper to specialist care so they might think that you can be treated by them in the practice or you can use some sort of like self-help you know remedies and exercises or what have you if they think you need a referral into a specialist at secondary care then they can organise that and then you're obviously under the care of the hospital at that point there is a move to bring more uh, hospital specialists into the community as well through clinics and home visits and that sort of thing and then we've got obviously we've got emergency care So the A&E departments where you can get more direct access for something that's quite time sensitive. A big problem that we've got at the moment, and I don't know if you've got a similar thing over there because of the way the system's set up, it can sometimes be quite difficult to get GP appointments, especially sort of out of hours, sort of in the evenings or on the weekends. So a lot of people, instead of waiting for a week, or longer than that, to see a GP, they'll just turn up straight to the A&E department and get referred in that way because they know they're going to get seen. I think that's especially like, you know, my generation sort of thing where everything's on demand. It's Netflix, it's Spotify. We don't want to wait even two days for something. So we'll we'll always go to the place that will see us quicker. And that's having an effect on the cost as well.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, we have this rise of the, and I don't know if you have it or alluded to it, but the urgent care, you know, so how can you get access to your point on demand, which is I wouldn't say a a complete, you know, emergency department, but generally, you know, it's quick access. You can kind of see somebody that's not your primary care, but they can kind of, I'd say almost triage you or or treat very basic things. You know, there's the rise of telemedicine. So Mm -hmm. I think the consumers or the, you know, maybe people don't like that, but the patients want more on-demand care. I I think that's definitely going to be a growing trend with just, you know, our generation and, and the speed at which, you know, we can do business in, in other arenas. So as we talk about innovation and entrepreneurship, can you talk a little bit maybe about, you know, the NHS and, and some of the opportunities or maybe challenges, you know, building projects or, or launching innovative ideas within the system? And and what do you think maybe some of the opportunities are right now?
0: The NHS's relationship with innovation, I guess, will be described as complicated at best. Everyone knows that we want to be doing healthcare innovation and that kind of thing generally but no one's really sure as to how we can do it and there's very few people who actually want to take the risks to do it so obviously the way our system is set up there's not really an incentive to take the big entrepreneurial risk because you're, you're already the dominant player in the space there's no massive pressure for you to keep up unless there's a lot of public pressure behind it and you know for, for introducing certain uh, medications like the well-publicized ones for cancer there's sometimes pressure for those but there's not a massive demand from the public for things like telemedicine right now. And there's no pressure that other competitors are going to come into that space. So they don't see the need to move quickly on it. I guess as a matter of fact, now some competitors are starting to come in. So we've got apps like uh, Babylon, which does uh, remote consultations through Android and iOS devices. But they still got to work within the larger NHS system. And it's not really a threat that it could one day take down the NHS or reduce their reduce their revenues or their customer base. Whereas obviously in the US, you've got the opposite. If a company, if a provider doesn't keep up with the latest apps and wearable devices or whatever, and look into using big data to harness value, they're just going to get overtaken by their competitors, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I think, very different just given the payment landscape, right? Because the United States is going through a huge transformation, you know, with one of the largest payers, which is the government government. Which kind of put a stake in the sand recently and said, you know, we're going to value-based care, which basically means that, you know, we're going to look at, you know, not just paying for a fee for service, so every time you go in, but more, you know, episodes of care or managing patients in more of a risk-based contract. So thinking about, mm. you know, to your point, how to how to produce value. So I think there's an incredible excitement in the states around, you know, the startup scene. You know, there's uh, the big data that you alluded to, but Many companies even just you know building out some of these models there's been companies that are started you know to kind of help ban the population based medicine concepts concepts around innovative primary care where people are looking at you know how can we uh, deliver you know primary care in a different way and I think in addition to that you know technology is starting to play a real force I wouldn't say uh, all physicians are getting that excited about adoption, but you know we have the EMRs but you know, there's still, I think our generation is very excited about how can we leverage technology to produce a better, you know, more engaged patient and help our patients drive their own care. When you say your personal.
0: generation, is that referring to sort of what the, the doctors, the, the managers, as well as the patients?
1: Um, I think everybody's kind of using the smartphone, but I, I'm, I guess when I'm saying my generation, I I feel like my generation of physicians is really not that the, you know, the older generation aren't excited, but I think we're especially excited about some of the opportunities, you know, with technology and, and taking care of our patients in a new, more innovative way, connecting with them, you know, yeah, understanding absolutely. their. I don't. I don't know if the junior doctors in the UK are also, you know, pretty excited about some of the. The junior the
0: tech. doctors really are, and you, you know, a surprising amount of, um, you know, of. of- what I politely call the old guard, as well as sort of you know, consultants. <laughs> we better be but, uh, careful.
1: Some of our user base, right? or listener base.
0: I'm pleasantly surprised by how engaged um, a lot of consultants are with you know with technology that wasn't around when they were growing up or training to do medicine but they're you know it, it sometimes takes longer because they've not had that exposure to it but a lot of them do see the value of it and incorporate it into their practice then start advocating it you know it is good to have a skeptical voice on stuff as well because sometimes we can get a bit carried away with technology and put it into places where it's not delivering an obvious value but no the the junior doctors are definitely really um excited about it I I I give talks to medical students every so often. Yeah, I'm usually expecting a lot more pushback than I actually get when I'm saying things like, you know, IBM Watson's going to be diagnosing your patients better than you in a year from now (laughs) and stuff like that. But that they... they accept that. They like the fact that it's, it's freeing them up from that side of the work or it's augmenting their decision process. And it means that they can move to focus on areas of patient care where, where they can add more value you know, than an algorithm can, which is great.
1: You know, we'll never get away or, you know, hopefully we'll never get away. I, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I think there's always going to be that patient physician interaction that is that incredible special bond that, you know, many of us kind of sign up for this profession to do you know, that interaction and that kind of built in trust that, you know, we as the physicians get to build. And then to your point, we augment that with technology and ways in which we can connect um, with our patients in a, in, a, in a new way, maybe not, you know, that's the only way, but but a new way in which we can, you know, start engaging them, you know, not just kind of visit based care where you're seeing them face to face, but, you know, throughout kind of, you know, that 365 uh, day, year journey, you know, along their uh, along their care and kind of monitor them in, in a way that makes sense.
0: I think so. Yeah. And I, I think it's, in, in a way, I think the technology might get to a point where, you know, it, it's only within like 30 or 40 years ago, that, that medicine's got really very evidence-based and very statistical and very algorithmic. And right now we're in a sort of transition phase, I guess, between the old sort of uh, much more simple relationship doctors and patients had in terms of the explaining and the empathy and, and that sort of thing. What When the machines are very good at, at this kind of thing about uh, the diagnosis and all the rest of it, in a way it lets doctors focus on, on that one-to-one relationship with the patient and explaining concepts to them, giving them health education and advising them in a way that's aligned with the patient's interest. And, you know, that kind of wise and physician patient relationship
1: with the kind of patient relationship, you know, the NHS, do you feel like you're able to spend, I guess, maybe the other argument with more a single system or one, one system, do you feel like you're able to spend the amount of time that you want? I think it's even a constant struggle in in the States to uh, look at ways in which you know, a lot of us feel fairly rushed that the appointment time is yeah. shorter. Well, what, what what,
0: what's the primary care appointment time in, in the States? We've got about 10 minutes here.
1: I think you're not far off. You know, in a busy practice, if you're seeing 30 or 40 patients, it could be, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you know, and then you've got, you know, the nurse practitioners or the physician extenders That maybe Mm -hmm. you're working with and i wonder in kind of a single payer system if that you know becomes easier or becomes harder kind of work together just as a single unit or team or people feel that that would be a fear that because there are options here in the states where you can get you know concierge medicine so you can pay maybe a significant fee or even i'm seeing a a trend or a rise in what's termed direct primary care where i Mm. see people you know paying you know, fifty dollars or or hundred dollars based on their age, and they're able to see or interact with a uh, primary care doctor almost twenty four seven.
0: This is is this um would mini a minute clinic be an example of that?
1: So minute clinic would be more of an example of kind of an urgent care, you know, quick access. This would be right. You, you know, you sign up with your GP, right, and that GP says to you, James. You pay me a hundred bucks a month or, you know, a hundred pounds a month. And I'm you are on retainer. It, exa- on a retainer, but you can see me or interact with me as much as you want. You can shoot me a text message. You know, I can do a video chat. That's, I a, really cool, that's a
0: really cool idea, actually. Um, um,
1: and and that's, that's a big, you know, when I look at, you know, some of the major innovations here, I, I see that as a huge innovation in terms of, I think there's many sides of people here that don't even agree with insurance and direct primary care says, you know, you pay me a fee, you come in as much as you want. Let me interact with you. They're not they're not they're, they're seeing insurance more in, in terms of, you know, large risk, right? The heart attack, the big acute events, primary care mm-hmm. is more kind of maybe the way you guys view it, which is it's a right, everybody should have it, you should see me as much as you want. I don't know what you think about that.
0: So there's, there's a lot of points there. I'm just trying to suggest. To to something. <laughs> but that does sound like a really good idea. Uh, I think Everyone would want more time with the doctors. I think ten minutes is probably a bit pushed. I think a lot of people do feel it's a bit rushed. It it, it sort of works in the in the system that we've got. The we've not got enough appointments. That more GPs would probably be a good thing for the UK. I think the real strength of that system is I know that when I'm speaking to a GP, you've not got much of a systemic bias in there. So I know that when A GP will happily tell someone in the UK that they don't need an operation, for example. There's no incentive for the GP to tell someone they need an operation unless they really need it. Whereas I think, unless I'm really wrong, in the States, there are incentives in place that hospitals get reimbursed more for doing procedures. Therefore, if you if you injure your knee, you're not just going to get an x-ray. You're going to get an x-ray, an MRI and a CT scan. Uh, <laughs> if you might need knee surgery, you're going to have knee surgery. And, you know, it leads to more costs to the patient. It leads to people having surgeries where the risk benefit ratio is in a gray area. Uh, I don't know. Would you agree with that or am I listening to too much propaganda?
1: <laughs> so so I think you're talking mainly about the for service system, which, you know, definitely value doing more, hopefully doing more appropriately. You might be able to argue that. I think as we shift, you know, our incentives, I think this brings up a great point. As we shift to more maybe value-based care, if you have arthritis in your knee, right, in your 85 or 90, you know, should we do the operation or shouldn't we do the operation You know, I think when you move to more value and looking at, you know, what patients really need, the orthopedic surgeon, you know, more of a value-based model would be more incentivized about, you know, what, what can I help the patient with doing the operation, right? Yeah, um, and,
0: and we have targets here, to be fair. I, I think they're probably less strong than yours. They're more like, like quality targets to meet in terms of how many of your patients are diagnosed with a certain thing and how many are on treatment. So uh, I think a bit of those bad incentives does creep in that way. It's a little bit pure in the UK in terms of the advice you get.
1: I think a lot is driven, you know, both on the innovation side as well as I, I think some of the largest differences is on the payment side, because I think if you understand where the dollars are going you know, that, that oftentimes hmm. kind of brings up opportunities or, you know, with new shifts in, in how payment is done, I think it well, completely changes the game, guys. right?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, the you're setting up the rules of the game and that's going to fundamentally affect how people play that game, right? Um, so I guess that we, we've sorted it in a sense, in the sense of the NHS, because it is an arm of the state essentially, and its, it's mission is to rev- increase healthcare for people. We want to reduce costs so that we can treat the most amount of people. We've got an absolute incentive to find coronary heart disease very, very early on, even into the sort of public education of, of young people sort of stage. Before it gets to a point where you're needing surgical intervention for it, and it sounds to me like with this move from fee for service to value-based medicine, that's what you guys are trying to implement now, right? So hospitals are incentivized not to do surgery, but to go back in time almost and prevent that surgery from needing to happen.
1: Yeah, I, I think think you're right, and and I think you know because there's so many different you know ways in which people get paid. I mean, it's the hospitals, it's the physicians, it's the payer. I think we are moving away from you know, doing more and thinking about how to produce good quality, uh, lower cost and produce value. The rules are changing. And so therefore might be one of the most exciting opportunities, especially those uh, people listening, both in the UK, you know, to think about some of the opportunities, you know, globally, you know, especially in the States, maybe some of the things that we're doing and maybe even applying some of the, you know, thought process and some of the uh, understanding about you know how to you know some of the work that you guys have done to really drive some of our innovation that would be a cool opportunity.
0: Yeah, I th- that'd be a fascinating exchange of ideas. In part, I guess it's what we're doing now. I, <laughs> I think we could learn a lot about the way that you guys incorporate your innovation. I mean, it's the innovation you guys do, is, is I think, is really exciting. I agree with you in, it, in a lot of ways ahead of uh, what we're doing here. Because you've got those market incentives in place, I think we wouldn't want to move to more of a market system, but we would want to see how we can take some of the components of that and internalize it into the NHS. So things like, I don't know, what do you guys to encourage innovation? I'm guessing there's, sort of, there's a lot of accelerators and funding going into that space.
1: There's a lot of accelerators. There's a lot of hackathons. A lot of what I focus on and, and look at is a lot of physician innovation. I think there's a tremendous amount of physicians kind of stepping out of the clinical roles and looking at you know, putting a new hat on and, and driving innovation.
0: It and, seems like that's more of an accepted idea. in the States. If, if someone said they're a physician entrepreneur in the States, will people sort of double take at that? Or is that something people are used to?
1: I think it's a growing breed. I think I'm seeing a lot more physicians becoming open to the idea that, you know, they can play a different role in healthcare and, and drive innovation. The reason that is, is because the game is changing. And because of that, I think a lot of physicians want to, you know, kind of lead the charge versus having, you know, I know on the first step, we talked about top down, I think physicians are the front level, you know, we're, we understand, mm. you know, what needs to get done. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of physicians kind of understanding, you know, the new incentives, understanding where the market's going, and thinking about where that puck's going, and being a part of the innovation and, and driving it. And I hope to see many more, you know, taking a different journey
0: that's interesting i don't know my, my idea of americans in general is and then no, it's not offensive although there are offensive ones as well no you guys are very entrepreneurial just in general i think and it, it's part of um, your guys mythology it's uh, like the american dream and not you know all that sort of stuff it's people what do you call it they really value the the, the small businessman or the, the self-made millionaire so it, it makes a lot of sense to part of the cultural positions is also to be taking the charge and driving these innovations and making their own enterprises out of it yeah and- whereas in the uk we are all sort of repressed and um, <laughs> <laughs> talk
1: about exactly it's uh i mean i don't know if it, it's is it looked down upon this whole concept of physician entrepreneurship in the uk do, do you see that the physician business guy is you know not an innovator but somebody that you know is trying to capitalize on on a on it, a so-called that, right
0: that definitely can be uh yes that can be an aspect of it i think less so recently and it depends on how you explain it private practice for example is not Universally, but often uh, a little bit looked down upon, especially amongst um, NHS staff. So, if, if you say you're going to uh, leave the NHS and go work in private practice, there's a little bit of a feeling sometimes that you've m- maybe betrayed the NHS in a way because you're sort of like you're selling out, you know, you've been trained by the NHS and you've been doing this sort of public healthcare system where rich and poor can attend and know uh, the salary's not amazing, but that's sort of part of what you're doing and you're in the trenches with these people. You, obviously, if you move out for a high salary, it, you know, it just creates that a little bit of conflict sometimes when I say I'm you know a medical entrepreneur I think it's different because of the associations between of the word entrepreneur is generally less associated with oh, our know, money grabbing and huge salaries or whatever and it's more about innovation and delivering value and people distribute it more to people like Richard Branson and the Silicon Valley guys. So it's more of an exciting thing rather than like this fat cat corporate thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think in the States, brought up a lot of points. I, I think we're all about the American dream and or some physicians, I, I, I will say it's a new breed of physician, you know, looking at some of the opportunities and how they can play in the game. Should we talk about the, uh, the Ask Dr. nurse section?
0: Yeah, we, so, we've, we've clearly sorted the
1: difference between US and UK <laughs> we've, so we've We've solved the uh, US-UK problem. Yeah, I, I think we'll have to have a second discussion for sure. I think we, we just scratched the surface. and I, I think it'll, it'll end up being a recurring topic. <laughs> sure.
0: It was interesting to hear your side of the, the US anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, so one of the questions, and, and I don't know if you get this a lot, you know, I think it's one of the hot topics and I don't have an MBA and, and I see a lot of physicians or MD MBAs kind of coming out. Some will go into innovation or management later, but Very few just kind of out of the gate become entrepreneurs. You know, the question from kind of the community was that, should I get an MBA? How do I kind of get involved in in the business world? What What is your experience?
0: So MBA, I should just explain for people, is the Masters in Business Administration. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a well-sought-after professional qualification if, if you're wanting to go into to business and, and corporate tiers and that sort of thing. It's not something I've heard of much uh, in the UK. I know one clinical entrepreneur who, who did an MBA, but I don't, I don't know anyone else. And I know quite a few people who've gone down the business route. To me personally, I don't know how relevant it is for the whole the, the startup scene and for entrepreneurship in general, and setting up a digital business, I think it's probably more geared towards you know, large corporate roles and consultancy and that sort of thing. I think a lot of the things you need to learn about running your own business, there's only one way to do it, and that's starting your own business. Other than that, there's fantastic resources and communities online now. The network is something that an MBA can help you with, but there's other ways you can get that from. So I'd be tempted to say, I I personally don't have any plans to, to go for one. I wouldn't necessarily advise it for people unless... There was a specific reason why they needed it, like for a particular job, or they were working in an industry which had particularly high regard for it. But that's just my two cents. What What about you?
1: So I kind of agree. So I've always viewed it as like a nice to have, uh, mm-hmm. but not a, a must have. I think it does give you, you know, especially in in, in some of the deeper finance roles, or you know, if you're going to really do, you know, a lot of valuations and kind of maybe join as a uh, you know a venture capital firm, or to your point, a a, a consulting um, group. Many, I see many MD, MBAs kind of join those roles uh, that are very, you know, uh, require a lot of finance and, and, and a lot of kind of uh, number crunching. Mm. Um, the other, you know, role that I see is, uh, you know, people that are looking more for kind of administration or, or leadership roles um, in larger corporations. But, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs that I've met both in and outside of healthcare, or uh, kind of just learned it as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: And the ones who were these amazing guys who do have an MBA, I'm fairly confident it's not the MBA that made them like that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. They would have been successful either way is my assumption. You know, MBA, no MBA. Well, with, with you
0: know, the generation of entrepreneurs coming up now, uh, the the best ones don't have a degree at all. They, they've they've dropped out of things. Famously, did you read that article? Um, officially, now Stanford
1: dropouts have a higher uh, average salary than people who've completed a de- degree at Stanford. <laughs> that, that's scary. Luckily, we both didn't go to Stanford, right? So we still have uh, we still have potential to do well, I guess, right? Or or better than the. Uh... the the folks that actually got the degree from there.
0: Uh, I think it's massively offset by Steve Jobs' (laughs) wealth. But yeah, basically, I guess we're saying it's, you know, if you've got one or you're already going for one, it's probably going to be helpful in some ways and it's going to open some doors for you, but not necessarily worth committing two years of your life to when you could spend that two years getting experience in a different way.
1: Exactly. You kind of have to weigh up the, you know, what's the return on investment, both from a time and money standpoint. Can you build a contact and network base without it? I think absolutely. Clinic of greatness. You know, this is kind of our weekly topic. One of the things that that I thought we'd bring up. You know, for kind of our, our daily tip, just momentum. You know, last week we kind of call. You know, talked about just doing it and, and the Nike slogan. But you know, that's the getting started part. But I think the hard part is the consistency of daily yeah. action and daily movement and you know, just making daily progress. What do you think, James? yeah
0: that's a great point actually for those that know it my roles with my own company have if, if changed massively over the last 18 months so i've gone from being the main sort of well one of the main developers on the platform from a technical standpoint to doing more of the ceo role and the you know networking and basically about getting momentum behind the product. and the biggest way that's changed i've had to change my work ethic is development you can do in massive batches so you you can buy some red bull and do a sort of 24-hour stint and just get a lot of work done it's awesome but this kind of thing You can't really do like that. You've got to do sort of half an hour here and there, a few hours each day, and just keep things going, batting emails along to people and making sure that you're on this trend towards greatness, I guess. Uh, So you've got to plan out your time and just make sure that you're, as you said, consistently working on it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the biggest point is consistency. You know, as long as, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs I've studied come up with a few things that, you know, have to get done every day, you know, for each of the businesses. and. I think that's one of the biggest keys, you know, it's yeah. that daily step, the daily piece. So I, um, I,
0: I I, should read more of those, but I always avoid it because uh, <laughs> I know that when I click on it, it's going to say, you need to wake up at 4 a.m. and go to the yeah. like,
1: oh, I don't want to do that. I, I think you're a night owl. So I think, I think we're good. You know, as long as you, as long as you, you keep working late, you can get things going. And, and, and I think it's just about the daily movement, just keeping yeah, things yeah, moving. Yeah, James, it's been an honor as, as always on, on the Doctrineur uh, podcast. Thanks so much for- Yeah, uh, no, great, great speaking with you. I, I think we'll still be debating the uh, the UK-US you know, uh, rivalry throughout the podcast well, over, over the coming weeks. I realize that the NHS
0: is better. <laughs> thanks,
1: thanks for listening,
0: everyone. Uh, Greg, obviously, thanks for coming on. Looking forward to the next episode where we're going to be
1: talking about, is it telemedicine, Greg? Yeah, we're going to talk about the future of the doctor visit. Hope everybody leaves some comments. We, we want to spark, you, some, you comments. Know, some comments. Uh, um, let, let
0: us know what you'd like us to answer in the Ask Doctorpreneurs section. If you enjoy the podcast, just let us know what you think, how we can improve it. And, of course, share it with your friends. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: From Greg and James, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, remember to subscribe to the show and check out www.doctorpreneurs.com for more.